0: Have you ever thought about changing your name? I don't mean like for you ladies. I know that many of you, in fact, I hear women talk about being little girls and practicing, you know, writing another last name as they dream about getting married someday. And the day comes and you actually change your name. But I mean changing the whole thing, the whole name. I got looking this week at some examples of folks who took the plunge to change their name. Uh, One of them was Claire Forshaw. And uh, her new name, PrincessRainbow.com. Uh, the reason she gave was that, one, her boyfriend thought it would fit her because she loves rainbows. Uh, another one was Luther Divine Knoxt, who renamed himself as None of the Above. And the reason was he felt there weren't enough candidate choices on the ballot and so he renamed himself, and then he would enter the election just so that on the ballot it would say, none of the above. Uh, or Simon Smith. Simon Smith decided to rename himself Bacon Double Cheeseburger. And he said the reason was that he spent too much time at a pub with friends. It was the first thing that came to mind, and he said everybody loves cheeseburgers. So he became Bacon Double Cheeseburger. Uh, Or Tyler Gold, who decided to rename himself as Tyrannosaurus Rex. Because he thought it would be really cool to have the nickname T-Rex. And he also said that name recognition is important for an entrepreneur. So he thought being T-Rex would give him better name recognition. And, And then last but not least by any means was Jeffrey Wilschke. And he decided to give himself a new name, and I am not making this up. Bezow, doo-doo, zoppity-bop, bop, bop. He said that bizau represents the explosion of awareness of the interconnectedness of the infinite love in the universe. Doo-doo is the struggle of our daily lives with that awareness. And zoppity-bop, bop, bop is the outcome of that struggle because all life ends in death. And I was thinking that if T-Rex met bacon double cheeseburger, it might be a zippity bop 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 moment. <laughs> well, the character we're going to consider this morning also wanted to change her name. But it wasn't because she loved rainbows. Rather, it was because of some hard realities of an unexpected life. We've been talking over uh, the last several weeks about a variety of biblical characters whose lives took very unexpected turns. Today we're going to look at a story that is found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And uh, in a few weeks, Doug Young is going to take us through a short series on the book of Ruth. Uh, But today I want to look at just one woman in that larger story. And I want us to think about the woman, Naomi. So we're going to read the first seven verses of the book of Ruth. Here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Huh, private really is unavailable. Interesting, what shows up on your screen. Well, what do we learn from these opening sentences of the book of Ruth? Well, Well, the time frame, we're told, is during the age when Israel was ruled by judges. In other words, it's before Israel had become a monarchy. The story of Ruth is a story of hardship. There is a famine in Israel, and it's severe enough that people are being forced to leave their homes in search of food. And among those famine refugees is a young couple, Elimelech and Naomi, and their sons. And I'm sorry, last week I told you what I think of when I see the name Salmon i just got to tell you, whenever I see the name Elimelech, I can't help but have this thought. Elimelech, right? I mean, is that not what this song says? All right. See, you couldn't miss that. That was too good. Well, you probably recognize the name of their hometown. The hometown is Bethlehem, which you might want to keep that bit of trivia tucked away in your memory banks. Uh, Ultimately, they find a new home in a land far from home, the land of Moab. And the new home means that they're now among a new people, strangers, not Israelites, Moabites. And the loss of community, culture, even language, everything that was familiar had to be a great loss to that little family. If you've ever been in a new place where you don't know the language, you know that can be very difficult. But there was more loss coming. Because we're told the very next thing that is recorded is that Elimelech dies. And it is a tragic and an unexpected loss. Naomi is left with grief, with loss. And not only is she left with loss, she's also left with tremendous responsibility. Now she's a single mom in a foreign land, far from the family safety net that she normally could have relied on. But then things got better, right? Because we're told that her son's married. And for an aging widow, in that time and place, where your security was usually found in the men, it was in a husband or was in, in married sons. For Naomi, this was a real big bonus. Now she had sons to provide for. She had daughter-in-laws to care for her. She had the promise of babies to bounce on her knee but better, didn't last very long. There were 10 years of promise, but then the expected babies didn't come. And worse, unexpected tragedy struck again. We're told that both of her sons died. We don't know how. Maybe it was disease. Maybe there was an accident in the field. Maybe marauders attacked. But whatever happened, Suddenly, young men that should have been in the prime of life caring for their mother are struck down, and Naomi and her daughters are now left alone again. Whatever dreams that she and Elimelech had dreamed when they had set out on that journey years before, all of those things seemed lost. So with all of the male family support gone, Naomi realized it was time to return home. Again, in a time when uh, having family, and especially male family, provided the social support for a woman, uh, Naomi recognized that her safety net was back in Bethlehem. So Naomi set out for home. And her daughter-in-laws, themselves grieving, this small band of widows sets out together to start the journey with her. But Naomi wisely stops her daughters, and she has a little conversation with them. And she says, you know, really, Bethlehem isn't your home. Your home is here. The the Moabites are your people. And you should stay. You're young. You can still bear children. There are men who will marry you. You should stay here. Bethlehem is where I need to go. And one of the daughter-in-laws, Orpah, listens and agrees. And so she bids Naomi a tearful farewell. And she returns to her people. The other daughter, Ruth, does something surprising. She says, no, I'm not gonna stay here. I'm going with you. She said, now your people are going to be my people. Your God is my God. And the story of Ruth and Naomi is a beautiful story of love and dedication. Well, when they get back, they become instantly the talk of the town. It says that when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, don't forget that Bethlehem was a small town, and and so everybody knew everybody. It was more of a village, really. Uh, Nobody came into or out of town without everybody noticing. Uh, It's been at least 10 years, probably more, since Naomi left, but uh, all the old-timers still know Naomi. Uh, It reminds me of an incident years ago when Burnett and I were living in Los Angeles. We came home one Christmas and brought some good friends of ours home as well. And they had spent years living in LA, the big city. They'd never been in a really small town like Squim, And back then, Squim was a lot smaller. And they couldn't get over the fact that everywhere Burnett and I went, people said hi to us, even though we'd been gone for several years. we go to the grocery store. We were out cross-country skiing and ran into people. That it was the girl that I walked with at graduation. And, and they just couldn't get over that we knew everybody in town. The story got better when we flew back home. They flew home ahead of us. They came to meet us at the airport in Orange County. Back then, you unloaded directly off the plane to the tarmac. And we're coming off the plane. We see our friends standing in the crowd of people there to meet us. I kid you not, three people in front of them is a guy that I graduated from Squim High with. He goes, Tim, I go, Brent. Our friends just shook their heads. They're going, it's incredible. You know. But that's what it'd be like for Naomi going back to Bethlehem. Everybody knew Naomi. And folks started talking. You know, what's she doing back here? Where's Elimelech? Where are the boys? And who's that young woman that's with her? But Naomi has news for them. The news is that she is changing her name. It was her way of saying, I'm not the same woman who left here. The unexpecteds in my life have changed me. They've changed the way I perceive myself. They've changed the way that I want you to perceive me. They've changed the way even that I perceive God. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. To really understand the significance of that name, you need to know a bit about Naomi's original name and a bit of Israel's history. Naomi's name means pleasant. It was a a name, a sweet name given by loving parents to a sweet little girl, but Mara is not so sweet. The first time we hear that name in the Old Testament is in the book of Exodus. And it comes in the aftermath of Israel's escape from Egypt by way of the Red Sea. Here's that story. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which means bitterness. Do you hear what Naomi is saying? She's saying, don't call me pleasant anymore I'm not the sweet little girl that left here years ago call me bitter the unexpected tragedies of my life they have drained away the pleasantness and all that remains in my soul are rancid waters like our ancestors in the desert She's not even afraid to say that she holds God responsible for bringing her into such a bitter place. You know, loss can leave us bitter, can it? I have known people like Naomi who have encountered hope-shattering disappointment, and like Israel in the desert, what they hoped would bring fulfillment only brought bitterness. And maybe that's your story maybe there is a tragic twist somewhere in your past that has tainted and soured everything about life for you. And I wouldn't for a moment dare to glibly suggest that somehow those losses aren't as shattering as they were. And those kinds of losses can't help but reshape us. Naomi was right. She came home a different woman than the way she had left. The unexpected things in life had shaped her, and and the shaping wasn't always in a good way. But I'll also say that in the reshaping, there are choices to be made as to how those things shape us. We can shake our fist at God in rage. We can even turn our back on him. Or, like a child whose most cherished toy has been broken, We can come to our Heavenly Father, honestly, with tear-stained faces and hold the pieces out and lay them at His feet and say, what can you do with this? It doesn't make the break go away, but it brings us into a different relationship with our Father. Naomi felt her bitterness, but it wasn't the end of her story. Naomi had come home a broken woman, but there was also a time when she was ready to move on from her bitterness. For Naomi, that meant becoming a matchmaker. She helped her daughter in law get connected to an extended family member, uh, a good man named Boaz, which is a fun story all its own. Uh, Turns out that Boaz was positioned in the family in a unique place where he was called the Kinsman Redeemer, And, and that's what he did. He married Ruth, and in doing so, he redeemed what had been lost. Ruth had a son with Boaz, and once again we find the women in town talking about Mara, except this time they don't call her Mara. She was no longer defined by her bitterness. Here's what they said. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. This baby shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. It's interesting that women declare Obed to be Naomi's son, because in a literal sense, uh, he wasn't her son. He wasn't even really her grandson. If you trace it, he was actually a step-grandson. That was probably not the kind of grandmother that Naomi had ever envisioned for herself. And yet, Obed was the blessing that God provided. The name Obed means one who serves. Most likely, it means one who serves God. How did Obed serve? Well, for one thing, he served God by serving Naomi. Obed served by helping to take away some of the bitterness of her loss. He served by growing to be a man who would care for her needs and provide her with security. Obed also served his family by carrying on the family name. In that culture, it protected the family's rights of inheritance. Ultimately, Obed would serve his nation. How so? Well, here's what the final phrase of verse 17 has to say. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David. Naomi, in the desert of loss, could only see bitterness. Her shattered dreams seemed a complete loss, and yet, unexpectedly, God took a broken woman and used her to orchestrate the family line that led directly to Israel's greatest king. And beyond that, another, even greater king, born in that little town of Bethlehem, Christ the Lord. Naomi, played a direct role in God's plan to bring all of that about. When Naomi named herself Mara, she was thinking about Israel's bitter experience in the desert. But you know, there was more to Israel's experience at those rancid springs. Exodus 15, 25, Moses cried to the Lord, the Lord showed him a log. he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. You see, God had a surprise in store for Israel. It was a miracle, no less. He had something unexpected to add to the story. For Israel, it was a log. For Naomi, it was Obed. And when he was finished, there was something sweet, even pleasant, like Naomi.
1: My name is Greta Beitzel. Uh, We moved here four and a half years ago from Western Maryland. And my unexpected story occurred in 1987. Willis and I were married in 1980. We had two children. Wendell was five at the time. Krista was three. And it was November in South Arkansas where we lived then. And Krista got what we thought was the stomach flu. Everybody was coming down with the stomach flu, and she started throwing up. By Saturday afternoon, it was evident that something was wrong. I called the doctor on Sunday morning. He said, I'll meet you at the emergency room. Every test he did came back negative, and he was getting ready to send us home to just watch her some more. When I commented, and I said, you know, Krista loves her grandpa more than anybody in the world and he came by to visit her and she didn't even respond to him. And at that point, the doctor said, let's do a spinal tap. And when he did that, the fluid actually shot out. There was so much pressure somewhere and he had trouble catching it in the test tube. He immediately then sent her for a CT scan and, and I'll never forget when he walked in that hospital room. He was carrying a scan um, film with him. He took it over and held it up to a window and called Willis and I over, and he said, Krista has a brain tumor. You talk about your world being shaken. My initial gut reaction was, no, that happens to other people's children, not to my children. He had already made arrangements to fly her to Little Rock, to Children's Hospital there, and um, I just fell apart. My arms and hands started going numb, I, I, di- I didn't know what to do, the, the bottom of my world had fallen out. My mom and dad drove us to Little Rock along with a, friend, a nurse friend of ours and it was so dark. It was just so dark, literally and figuratively. That night, our friend Lucy stayed with Krista in the hospital, and the four of us went to a motel, and I I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to sleep. But as I laid in bed, God gave me a vision, a dream, call it what you want, I know it was from God, and I saw a picture, a map of the United States, and there were strings from every state all over the united states going up to god and coming back down around christus hospital bed and i knew at that point that god had this god knew the next morning we met with the doctor and they did lots of tests on tuesday she had her first surgery When they came and said we could go back to see her after this five-hour surgery, um, Willis went back first. And when he got close, she saw him coming. And she said, Daddy, pray for me. So we knew she could see. She wasn't paralyzed. God gave me a verse in those early days, and it was Joshua one nine which says, and this is my paraphrase, Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I hung on to that verse with all my being. I still do. And it was some time after that that I just felt this cloud descending over my head, and I, I didn't know what it was, because I really didn't feel like I was doubting God. I didn't feel like I didn't trust Him. I didn't feel like I was depressed. I just didn't know what it was. And then my mom and I went to a women's weekend meeting, and I had opportunity to share with the speaker. And she came back to me later, and she said, Greta, I really believe what this cloud is you're talking about is grief. You're grieving the loss of a normal child. And as soon as she said that, it made every bit of sense in the world to me. We decided after several years that we would make a move to Maryland. My parents were in Arkansas, and we had a lot of friends, but we had no other family there. Willis had 10 brothers and sisters in Maryland, large extended family. Wendell had cousins there, and we knew that the family support group would be so much bigger there. But at the same time, it was too hot for Krista in Arkansas because apparently her temperature thermometer got messed up during the first surgery and she didn't sweat. So summer times were just brutal and I had to keep her in the air conditioning all the time. So in 1992 we made the move to Maryland. Before we moved, Dr. Chaddock wanted us to have another MRI done. When I talked to him that two weeks before we moved to get the results of the MRI, He said he wanted it repeated, so I reminded him that we were moving. And he said, oh, that's right, where are you moving to? And I said, Western Maryland. He said, well, how far is that from Gaithersburg? I honestly wasn't 100% sure, but I thought that it was about three hours. So I told him that. And he said, well, I'm moving to Gaithersburg. I'm going to be chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. I said, can we come see you there? He said, yes, I'll take her records with me. And you know, never in a million years, in all the different ways I imagined God could have answered my prayers, that wasn't one of them. I never pictured him moving the doctor across the country with us. Within two weeks of when we moved, he moved. So we had the same doctor. And and that was just more proof to me that God's got this. No matter what happens, God loves Krista more than I do, and I can trust him to do what's right. And during this time, Krista was becoming more and more Christ-like. She had something special going with Jesus that, I hope to attain to, but probably never will, this side of heaven. We were getting stories from her teachers at school, preschool, kindergarten. You know, the children she went to school with, if somebody fell on the playground, they would stop and say, where's Krista, because they knew Krista would come pray for them. The the kindergarten teacher who was trying to have practice for... um a Christmas play. And it was just, the teacher told us later, she said, the kids were out of control. She said, I, I, I didn't know what to do. And she said, Krista came up to me and said, Miss Becky, we need to pray. And she said, before I could even look around or acknowledge it, Krista had her hands up. And when was praying a prayer about God, Miss Becky needs help and, and you know, make the children listen to her. And she said, everything settled down. So Krista was somehow developing this relationship with Jesus that we didn't know. I mean, it was overwhelming almost to us. This went on for about eight and a half years. She had four different surgeries during that time. Her relationship with Jesus kept getting more and more. She would have long, extended times when she would play with her, play by herself, and she would talk. And I always assumed she was just talking to her dolls that she was playing with. But one time, I got close enough to realize that she wasn't talking to her dolls. She was having conversations with Jesus. She never complained, but she would say, Mommy, I just can't wait until I can go to heaven and play with Jesus. And her desire for heaven was just growing more and more. And her second surgery was in 92, in 1994. She had to have a third surgery. This time before the surgery, she had a seizure and was put on a vent when it was see ICU on a vent for like a, f- four weeks, I would sit in ICU and I would look at other children and and I would I would find things to be thankful for. That's how God got me through. There was always something I could find to be thankful for, no matter how bad it was. Some of our our friends in Arkansas had made a um part of a tape a cassette tape which dates all of this um with some of christa's favorite praise songs on it and we had that in icu with us and i would play it and i wished so much i had had him do more because it'd play half of a thing and then have to rewind it to the beginning of the tape again um but that Tape was played so often in ICU that the doctors and nurses were singing along with it as they would walk past her cubicle. The testimony she left everywhere she went was just incredible. Third surgery in 94, fifth surgery in 96. By this time, the surgeries were getting closer together. They were causing more damage. The fourth surgery caused paralysis on her left side, and by this time she was blind in her right eye because the tumor was right behind her right eye. She still had vision in her left eye, which we were very thankful for. So she came home that time in a wheelchair, and after that surgery we went and had a discussion with her doctor. And he said at that point, he said, you know, the the tumor has defined itself. It's coming back faster. It's coming back. It's growing faster. But yet the, the pathology always came back the same, that it was non-cancerous. It was a um, craniopharyngioma, for any medical people out there that want to know. Um, and, and he said he had been up all night calling his colleagues around the world, trying to find something that would help Krista. And there just was nothing. They didn't, they had exhausted all the resources. So we made the decision at that point to not do any more surgeries. And, um, he referred her for a make a wish trip at that point. We went home with a wheelchair and with all the hospital equipment, the potty chair and hospital bed. That was a tough time because we knew, we still knew that we knew that God could heal her. But we also knew that He might not on this earth. He might take her to heaven, which is really what she wanted. So we went home, and our life slowed down significantly. But yet, she always wanted to go to church. She always wanted to go to the kids' club at church. The one one Sunday night, it was 20 below zero, and it was snowing and blowing, and the heater was out in our van, and she wanted to go to kids' club at church. So we bundled her up in all the blankets we could find, and Willis took her to kids' club at church. We don't have one regret that we did dumb things like that, that to some people looking in would have seemed ridiculous to take our wheelchair-bound daughter in negative 20-degree weather to church, to kids' club. But we don't regret that at all. It was the right thing to do. When she started throwing up again, we knew that the tumor was probably back. Her doctor had retired by this point, but he had given us his home phone number and said, Call me. We had an MRI done, had the results sent directly to Dr. Chadwick's house. He read it, called us. He said the tumor's back bigger than ever. So at that point, we signed up with hospice. We told her, we said, Krista, sometime you'll probably go to sleep, and when you wake up, you'll be with Jesus in heaven. She got a couple tears in her eye and she said, well, Mommy, I'm going to miss you. I said, Krista, you might miss me, but you it won't make you feel sad because there aren't any sad feelings in heaven. Then we told her that Marina wouldn't be able to come anymore, the physical therapist, because uh, insurance wouldn't pay for her. She broke out in heart-rending sobs. She was like, I am perfectly fine with going to heaven, but don't take my friends away in the meantime. When I told Marina this, she said, Greta, I'm going to keep coming. I said, well, Marina, we can't pay you. She said, I don't care. She said, I need it for me. I need it for Krista. Up until Krista died, she was there three times a week, just like she always had been. And Krista was just thrilled beyond herself. We had lots of help. We had friends come and spend the night because Krista didn't sleep through the night. And the night she died, we didn't expect it that quick. It was um, the the nurse was there, and we were discussing how we were going to give her Krista her meds because she had apparently gone into a coma that afternoon. When Chris went back to check on Krista before she left. As soon as I saw her face, I knew. I said, it's not going to be long, is it? She said, no, it won't be long. By that time, there was almost a relief, and that I say that carefully because that isn't what a mother should say when her daughter dies, but I had watched her suffer for almost nine years, and it was it was a relief knowing that she was in heaven with Jesus. When we um had the viewing, a lady came through and she grabbed my hand and she looked me in the eye and she said, it never goes away. I literally wanted to physically distance myself from her. I almost felt like I could see the devil beaming out of her eyeballs. I asked Willis about it later and he said, yeah she lost a child, and she's never gotten over it, and she has just turned very bitter. I vowed right then and there that that would never be me. And I said, God, if you can use me in any way to help any other mother or family going through what I have gone through, please use me. And, you know, God has honored that through the years. God has led us to a lot of people that we have been able to pray with, be friends with. One family we walked very closely with, their daughter was diagnosed with brain cancer. And we, we walked very closely with them, became almost part of the family through that. That was hard. It was like I was living through it all over again. But, you know, I learned in a new way in those last months, especially with Krista, how to literally depend on God for strength for every day, every hour, every minute. I would be strong. I would go home and cry. And God always was there for me and gave me what I needed. And I am just so, so thankful if God can use my pain to help someone else. So, God has certainly honored my request and our request, because Willis is in this too, just like I am, to help other people as He brings them to us. And that unexpected that happened the beginning of November 1987 changed me forever. Would I wish this unexpected on anyone else? No, never. But would I give up what I learned? No, I wouldn't give that up either. It's too precious, and God has been too real through all of it to want to give it up.
0: Well, Greta, thank you for sharing your story. I want to finish this morning by doing something a little bit different. Because in a group this size, there may well be someone who is carrying your own Mara. You've got a bitterness that has been sitting there for a long time. And and maybe this morning God has spoken to you, and he said, "I, I would like to take the Mara, and I'd like to give you Obed. I'd like to start that process of healing. And I don't want you to leave here without the opportunity to open your hands to receive His grace. So I've asked some of our leaders, including Willis and Greta, to come up to the front as we're closing the service and be available here. And if you would just like to come and pray with someone we're not going to have the answers for everything here, but, but we will pray with you to the one who does have the answers. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in a closing song. And then I'll come back, we'll close the service. And if you would like to come and pray, then please do that. Don't, don't leave this morning with Mara. Ask God to bring you Obed.